Hello, welcome to another episode of the show. Today we are joined by a very special guest. Dr. Deepak Ravindran is a full-time NHS consultant in the UK and is a fellow of the Faculty of Pain Medicine at RCOA and the deputy editor for ePain, the digital platform for NHS England. He is the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Pain-Free Mindset, which was published in 2021. He's an honors professor at Teesside University, both certified in lifestyle medicine and MSK medicine, and has helped set up an award-winning NHS service for pain and long COVID. He lectures internationally and nationally on various aspects of trauma-informed pain practice. He also serves on the Clinical Advisory Board for Pain-Related Digital Startups and is the Chief Medical Officer for Bouchers Bear. We are also joined by our producer, Neha Rao, and I am your host, Aditi Bhatt. Hello, Dr. Ravindran. Very excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much, Aditi, for having me on the Expert Series for the Primus Conference. Really good to be here. And looking forward to seeing you and in Bangalore, of course. Um, Likewise. But I'm going to get right into the questions and right into what we talked about in our last conversation as well. And I've been doing research into um, all the work that you've been doing. Um, but I think for listeners who don't know much about you, much about your work, um, I'd like to just ask you, what do we talk about? And what do we mean when we talk about trauma-informed pain factors and the mind-body connection when it comes to pain? Because that is, that is the fundamentals of everything and all the work that you do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think as a background uh, to the conference and probably all the delegates will be coming internationally there. I am actually trained in India. I trained in JIPMA at Pondicherry, the Jawaharlal Institute of postgraduate medical education research. That's where I did my undergraduation and my postgraduation way back from 93 to 98 and then 2001. And along there, when I did my anesthesia, pain actually comes as part, pain management comes as part of my anesthesia post-graduation. And that's where my interest in that subject came along. And I realized that there is so much opportunity for research the understanding of the neuroscience of pain has evolved uh, already at that time there were some discoveries and ways about thinking about pain that were starting to change so when i came to the uk uh, in 2003 to kind of qualify and do my royal college of anesthesia exams pain had started to be one of the things that i wanted to sort of super specialize in and i did my fellowship in ucl uh, and in Stanmore. And, and I realized actually that when I became a consultant in Reading, there is the opportunity not just for research, but also about talking about the neuroscience of pain. And along this time, we had started to become aware on how much the nervous and immune systems are connected. And that has a lot of importance to know because whenever we talk about stress, whenever we talk about trauma, it has its impact on the immune system. And that means sooner or later, the nervous system will have to get involved. And if both of these systems are constantly there in our body to look out for us and to protect us, that gave an entirely new dimension to actually understanding pain, practicing pain, and helping people who suffer from chronic pain, because we still did not have the tools and only now we are starting to build the tools that can actually help us understand this connection between the nervous and immune system and therefore come up with the right kind of treatment. So actually my theory, my principle, my philosophy of trauma-informed pain care, as you said, is actually about saying this trauma does not mean like the orthopedic or the road traffic accident of trauma that we generally think means, but I want the word trauma to actually encapsulate or encompass something more than just the orthopedic version. It is about uh, talking about the overall impact of any kind of traumatic or stressful situation on the nervous and immune system and how each one of us responds differently to the nervous and immune system trauma and how we react to it. That has, I think, a great potential because it opens up a much more holistic and integrative approach to pain care rather than where we are right now stuck because of a variety of 
historical reasons, which we can go into later in the podcast. But that's what I feel that trauma-informed pain care matters. Uh, there was a second part to your question. Remind me again, Alti, what was the second part I've got? <laughs> what do we mean when we talk about the mind-body connection? But the, you already touched upon that. It is. I, I think, in a way, the mind-body connection is a natural uh, evolution from there. Uh, because effectively, if you think about it, I think in the Eastern cultures, in the Eastern philosophies that we are, we've always appreciated, you know, we've had our traditional systems of Ayurveda, we've had our traditional systems of uh, natural healing. And there we understood intuitively that the mind and body have always been one. But uh, Western medicine has often been influenced by this philosophy called Cartesian dualism. What that comes through is a hangover from a French philosopher, René Descartes, who suggested in all, in all goodness, I think in France in the 17th century, there's a variety of reasons that influenced his beliefs. But he suggested that the body can actually be separated from the mind. The mind can be part of God, but the body is something that could be taken apart and put together back again. And, and his philosophy allowed for the separation of the mind and the body, but it also allowed for all the fantastic technological advances that modern medicine is capable of doing because all our surgeries, all the ways we were able to operate on and dissect on and find certain various body organs that have gone wrong, fix them and put them back together again, all of that would not have been possible without that kind of philosophy. But I think we are right now reaching that stage in human evolution and in society where we realize that that separation between mind and body is kind of artificial because pain is one of those really relevant things wherein we realize that the mind and body have always been one, should be viewed as one, and should be treated as one. Because only when you realize that everything that you think in the mind has to be expressed through the body, i.e. the body keeps the score, or everything that happens in the body gives that information to the mind through a variety of structures that we now know exist. We accept that the mind-body connection has always been integral. So our way of managing pain, the trauma-informed pain care, is to actually bring in the best of what Western medicine has to offer with the best of what Eastern medicine or the mind-body approaches offer and to provide that integrated solution to our patients using, I think, all the tools that are available to us, whether that's technology, whether that's paper, whether that's reaching out to the public, using the community, public health options. I think that is the opportunity that we have with trauma-informed pain care. And so you have a podcast that also focuses on all the same topics. It's called Pain Speaks, available Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, and it also delves into several various aspects of pain and the mind-body connection, where you go further into it. Um, can you share specific insights or stories from your podcast or your book um, that highlight the impact of addressing psychological and emotional factors in pain management? Glad. Uh, so I think the podcast, I did my first season around the time that my book released, which was probably the first two, three months from March to June of 2021, when we were all sort of reeling from the COVID pandemic and its after effects and second or third lockdowns in, in different parts of the world, as it were. And at that point of time, uh, the book called The Pain-Free Mindset was really my understanding of the pain science, but I wanted to bring it alive by using stories of people who were in my clinic or people with pain who had actually managed to bring that integrated approach into their lives and turn their life around and improve their quality of life despite the pain or in some cases actually being able to become pain free and and that's the kind of uh, stories and proper sort of understanding of pain that i got into the book there so the podcast actually allowed me to speak to these same people it was almost the videos of that time that i did the audios at that time the life on Zoom as we were living at that time, <laughs> all of that life there. And I was able to bring those stories in. And what I wanted to bring through those stories, and if people were to listen to some of those episodes from 21 now, is to appreciate that when you listen to each of those individual patient stories. So for example, 
uh, two stories that one of them is a patient called Louise, who uh, is now in the British Pain Society in the UK. She has been part of the patient voice. She does so much work uh, talking about the dangers of opioids or pain medication, uh, about her own personal experiences and how she now is not on any pain medication at all and is able to live a much better quality of life doing a lot of activities. But if you rewind back to about four or five years ago, she was someone who had a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which is like a really horrible, chronic, widespread pain condition. And she was almost bedridden on many days. She was on opioids, like the strongest ever opioids, like OxyContin. If you remember House MD, that was the drug that he was abusing. It is the biggest drug of abuse in the US. And more people in the US have died of OxyContin overdose than anything else. And this was the drug that she had been uh, put on and was trying to manage. And despite very high doses, she wasn't getting the benefit, but she was getting repeated side effects. And her story, and she talks about this quite openly, is about how using these drugs meant that she was getting distance from her family, losing connection with life, and ultimately had a couple of horrible admissions to the hospital with extreme constipation. And that was the bottom line for her where she realized some change has to happen and she decided that she was going to make that change. She sought help of the professionals in the local area she was part of. She started to do some walking, which was the first of her mind-body techniques. She started to think differently about her pain and use some of the techniques that the professionals taught her. And fast forward now two, three years, the kind of work that she does, the amount of involvement she has in supporting other people with pain. She actually is part of a group of trainers, lived experience trainers in the United Kingdom, which have become a very popular notion of getting people with lived experience to talk about their experience. Because in some ways, somebody who's been through it can be a much better coach to people who want to know that they can get over something, whether that's reduced drugs or reclaimed life rather than somebody probably like me. I mean, I'll be honest completely. I may be absolute expert in understanding pain, but I have not lived through some of that. I have, my, have had my share of pain, everyone has, but I have not lived through it like the way she has. And so her story would have much more authenticity than my examples. And I think that was one really powerful story. And she contributed both to my book, to my understanding, and, and she also to my podcast there. There are a couple of other stories like that. There's another one called Pete Moore, who is now mm -hmm. part of the pain toolkit, I think in India and in, the, in many other countries of the world. His toolkit that he has, a 12-step approach to how people can and he has managed his mm -hmm. pain is fantastic. You know, now there is so much work around what he's doing. He's now got an AI uh, version of himself sort of advising patients. But that's the self-management guru that he has mm -hmm. become because He's done it. He's gone through the journey and I've had the fortune of interviewing him for my book. In fact, I think the last chapter in my book where it shows what is possible, he's actually been the interview for that and he talks about his journey as well. So I think these are all very powerful. Stories themselves are now so powerful and helping give that social proof and to help right. patients actually say, you can do it. It is possible to come out of pain without having to resort necessarily to expensive surgeries or strong drugs every time. They may be required. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's a definite role for interventions and surgeries and medications, but probably it isn't as much as we thought it would be because right. our understanding of pain is much more holistic and mind-body connected. And that's a very powerful uh, insight that you shared also is that hearing from somebody who has lived through that experience um, will always um, make more of an impact than just a doctor telling you what to do who doesn't quite may not quite relate to what's been going on. Um, and so for, for our readers who, if you are suffering from chronic pain, or if you know somebody who is suffering from chronic pain, please go listen to Pain Speaks, listen to these stories. I'm sure they will help you. Um, so in most of your work, you emphasize the importance of a multimodal approach to pain management. Um, 
Can you explain what a multimodal approach entails and how it can be effective in treating different types of pain? So this is something that's now becoming very common for any long-term condition. So what I'm doing for pain is not entirely something brand new, but I think that is the way it should be. What we now need to do is to find a way to get our health systems or insurers or whoever it is in whichever country your listener is do, listening to is to appreciate and actually to invest in this because what we've done as a healthcare system or a disease care system like many people like to call it uh, modern hospitals and modern healthcare is all about being reactive they treat the condition and usually it's like a serial thing like a patient comes if there is a handoff you know the patient comes, they will see a GP or a general practitioner. The general practitioner say, go and do that. They will go away to a specialist. Specialists say, yep, I will do my part. And then you go and see somebody else. And it almost becomes like a baton that is handed over. And in my book, I use this analogy of, we don't want you to be a ball that gets kicked out from person to person. Actually, we need to see if we can make you part of the team rather than the ball to be kicked around. And I think that is very important to understand that when you are thinking about a multimodal approach, you want the patient to also be part of the care team so that they can say what is important to them, what matters to them. And we then have the team who can integrate with them. So what is required in this new approach is not a handoff from a general practitioner to a specialist to somebody to somebody to somebody and then start the cycle is to probably have one team maybe with one person overseeing now that person may be the specialist himself who's got the team in the hospital or it could be the general practitioner or the gp or the primary care doctor who's got the members of the team in their practice but the aim is that the patient should feel that they're is an understanding of what they want, what they need, and that there are team members there to provide most of the care to them. Now, I appreciate that in developing countries or in other countries where resources poor, like in many African nations or in Asian countries there, we may need that there might be a physiotherapist who's also doing the role of the occupational therapist and has also got some experience in acupuncture, and some integrative techniques and mind and may also have to do some CBT or some psychological approaches. But in a country like, for example, India, where we have got specialist hospitals, it's possible then to have all these professionals available because pain is quite complex. And we have already established that there are emotional elements. When you have the nervous and immune system involved, the all our emotions is also driven by the nervous system all other biological functions are mediated by the immune system and the hormone system also comes along so there's a lot of impact of that so when you're trying to deal with something so complex where the output from the nervous and immune and hormone systems will keep changing from person to person we need a few specialists to be available and generally there to support the patient and to create one plan. That availability of specialists and the ability to create a plan with the patient's support and presence, that's the multimodal approach in my view. And to bring that and to make that happen, I think some uh, societies, some healthcare systems are more ready and others are probably less ready, but that I think should be the aspiration when insurers and health systems are looking to support this kind of approach, because this is the approach that is likely to be most effective for a condition like pain, but not just for pain, it's for any other long-term condition, whether that's obesity or diabetes or stroke recovery or rehabilitation from a nerve condition, neurological condition like Parkinsonism or multiple sclerosis. We need a group of interdisciplinary professionals working together with the patient part of the team. Do, would you have any insights on what, what is a first step that a team of clinicians can take in order to build a team like this? I think there needs to be, first of all, an uh, invested clinician, you know, someone who has got that bigger vision to say, okay, this needs to happen because this will be the best value for the patient to be able to avoid the patient from being bounced on here and there. 
The second step is that is to actually then get a group of like-minded clinicians in there. I think these are possible, you know, for, from my experience of having worked in the UK now for almost 20 years and then having trained in India there, I think there are certainly cities in India, even tier two cities or what, whatever the second level cities apart from the metros, where the number of clinicians are available. There are these groups of clinicians and the hospital facilities that are available to make this happen. In the UK, I've seen that when you do have a national directive, when sort of, you know, the National Health Service, the NHS says, these are the guidelines for managing pain. It should be a multidisciplinary. There should be a psychologist, a physiotherapist, or occupational therapist, possibly a pharmacist, maybe a dietitian. All of this should be led by a consultant or a specialist in the field who has got X number of years of experience with input from primary care and social services and public health. That means there is a governmental suggestion that this is the ideal that almost makes it easy for NHS hospitals to aim towards that. I'm not saying that every NHS hospital in the UK has got all those clinicians up and ready and running, but at least we've got a template. And I think for, for countries, for example, like India, when I'm coming over there, and for many other countries like the African continent, a lot of the Asian countries, coming from the top is a good thing, but at the bottom to operationalize it and to make it happen for the patient, you need a bunch of these clinicians to be reasonably close together. And probably my view is that I think the specialist in pain management might be the first one to sort of kickstart it off by seeking those people and working towards it. Like, for example, I'm aware that uh, Deepak Sharan, uh, Dr. Sharan is, has been able to integrate that and bring it together at Recoup Health. So there's no reason why that can't happen as well in other places. Um, so... We talked about clinicians and what they can do to make sure that they're giving the best care possible. But as a patient, when you're going through chronic pain, you know, there's a lot of um, impact that happens to your quality of life. There's a lot of pain fog that comes in. Um, and of course, your overall well-being is impacted. What advice or strategies do you have for patients and their families who are coping with this um, to ensure that they're getting the best care? Um, like I said, best being subjective to what they're history is, what their current experience with pain is, but how can they ensure that they're getting the treatment, uh, the multimodal approach treatment, in a way that benefits them for the better and for the long term? For long. I think it's quite important to understand that there are lots of options these days that happen. Uh, most importantly for a patient, who are struggling from chronic pain or their carers who are looking after them, I do think that there is a great information asymmetry. By that, I mean that there is so much advancement in knowledge that has happened, but we don't make that aware to the patient. And indeed, in the last 20 years, there's so much advancement that has happened that even the doctors who are looking after these patients aren't aware of the advances. So I think first of all, getting to understand your pain a little bit, to speak to someone who might be able to do a holistic assessment and actually say, these are the reasons, these might be the ways we go about it, is going to be very important. And prior to doing that, in these days of the internet and technology available, there are some really good sources. So for example, I work with a organization called Flippin' Pain and, you know, uh, Prof. Cormac Ryan and myself, we are coming over to India. We are part of that organization there. In fact, he's the Flippin' Pain champion, as it were. And we have got simple six key messages for the general public that we have been able to go at a grassroots level and talk to patients. We just want to, first of all, give these messages to say, every time you get hurt doesn't mean there is some harm being caused. It's important to understand that everything matters. You know, it's not that only your arthritis or only your muscle or your bone or something matters when it comes to pain. As I illustrated in my earlier things about this connection between the nervous and immune and trauma-informed, everything that matters in your daily life will matter when it comes to pain. 
And that means that medicines and surgeries need not be the only answer. That itself, I think, in an Indian setting is quite powerful because if you understand your pain, then there is a lot of opportunities for saying, okay, medicine and surgeries are not the only thing and I understand why my pain is happening. I might be able to go with trying out a new thing. And that means that you then have a set of techniques to say, if I do these, recovery is possible and that I can really make a difference in that recovery. I think that is where we want to get patients to understand and their carers to understand is that is that if they are able to internalize that, okay, there's a little bit of understanding I need to about the pain. And then these are the things I could try by myself safely because I'm not going to harm myself anymore. And then these are the things that I need a professional or their team, a multimodal team to help me with that I think is going to be the best way because otherwise let's, you know, even in NHS or in Western medical healthcare, the American model, everybody talks about the healthcare system being unsustainable or broken is because we think that everything can be fixed or identified on one scan or imaging and then one injection or one drug will fix it. But that's like almost thinking that medicine and surgeries are only the answer. And what I'm saying with pain uh, to anybody with pain who's listening to this is to actually say, if you are able to just understand the reasons for your pain, then you may find that there are things that you could do which can make a difference. And there will be things that we as professionals can make a difference and help you with so that you don't have to be entirely dependent on driving from hospital to hospital or doctor to doctor spending more and more on investigations and techniques that may not yield the answer you need without first exploring the things that you can do yourself. So uh, I hope I've answered that question uh, reasonably okay, and I'm happy to expand on it a little bit more. But I feel that for the person in pain, there's a lot of opportunities and hope that's available, but it is just about expanding what you feel you can do versus what the professionals can do for you. And it's also about expanding um, sort of because uh, I know that in India, at least the doctors are trained in a particular way, in a very traditional way, and the patients go in expecting that kind of care. So I think that that's also a key thing that needs changing that. Hey, um, and I think Con McRyan talks about it very well in our episode where he says, um, if we can get to a point where a patient goes in and says that I've been dealing with this thing in my shoulder for a really long time. I think some behavioral techniques or something can help me. So I think that will create a new dynamic and will give new ways. But to get there, of course, requires a lot of work. It does. And I think uh, this is where the public health messaging that we've been doing as part of Flippin' Pain has really been helpful because we almost empower patients. We give them really scientifically verified, highly accurate and authoritative information that they can use, you know. So, for example, in that in that thing that you said, uh, can I go to the doctor and say I have shoulder pain? I think I would like to try behavioral techniques. We are making the informed judgment that this patient has read about their pain, has tried a few things for their shoulder pain, and then realized at this point of time they would like to try something different, and they know that this is the person to go to to say I'd like to try this. And then they can go and tell that doctor, I'd like to try this. And, and it's very unlikely that in the coming five, 10 years where the consumer or the patient is the king or the queen, we will not be uh, receptive to that information because we will say, okay, fine. If that's what you want to try, then yes, your, your MRI or your X-ray of the shoulder might say yes, A, B, and C. But if you want to try a behavioral technique, this is my team member my multimodal team member who can help you with that. Let's see how they do. And if that works for you, fine. Are you doing ABC otherwise? Then we'll think about the next step. Right now, you're right. The way a lot of medical professionals and other healthcare professionals are taught across the world is a very traditional one wherein they are expected to be the fixer-uppers and you know people come to them with an expectation. 
And you're right, we need to change that dynamic a little bit to actually say, you're right to expect some things from the doctor, but you can't be right to expect everything from the doctor. That's not possible. Right. And also, to clear it up, these I wish these were my words, but I'm just stealing from Cormac Bryant's words. <laughs> this is all <laughs> Dr. Cormac. <laughs> oh, well, that's, all, that's, all, that's, called, cross that is... that's called cross-pollinating, Aditi. <laughs> It's me. It's me. Thanks. <laughs> but it's something that I, it's stayed with me ever since I talked to him about it. And it's, I, I've been ruminating over it for a while. It's, if we can change that dynamic and we can contribute to changing that, then that will solve a lot of problems. I think so. I think that's a public health aspect there. And I think uh, one of the things we really need to look at uh, maybe during this conference is to be able to speak with other uh, stakeholders, policymakers, people who are able to influence that in a public health setting is to actually have those conversations to say, how can we get conversations like this happening in every gully, in every naka, in every thana, in every kind of maybe have it in some movies so that this becomes acceptable to talk about and say, Kya kia? Tumne kya kia? What all did we do? But speaking of the conference, you're doing uh, several workshops on long COVID. Um, with Sophie, Hannah, and Dr. Ryan. Um, and you've set up an award-winning factors at NHS about long COVID and pain. Can you talk a little bit about your work with long COVID? Um, how have you been able to bring in trauma-informed pain factors into that? And what are you seeing change in the way that long COVID is assessed and treated? Excellent question there. I think uh, when, when I set up the long COVID service, I am still the only long COVID clinic in the United Kingdom, which is led by a pain consultant. Most of the other services, there are about 80 of them, are being led by more community practices or sometimes primary care and sometimes respiratory doctors, because everybody thought back in 2021 that COVID was a respiratory condition. But what we now know is that long COVID is what is called as a syndrome. Even the WHO calls it as post-COVID syndrome because they've identified that in this condition, the virus makes and causes some changes in the nervous, the immune system, and the vascular system, the blood vessel system, to a certain extent, almost at a long-term level. So this almost becomes like a long-term condition. And we now know that the most common symptoms that people with long COVID have, which is fatigue, which is brain fog, which is pain, uh, which is breathlessness, and then disturbances of various organ systems. Indeed, some studies have said that some people can have up to 200 symptoms from all the 10 organ systems. Can you imagine that? We in medical school have never studied a condition or disease like that wherein you can have that many symptoms from that many organ systems happening. Never happened at all like that. And so we are realizing that long COVID is actually more than just a respiratory condition or a pain condition or a fatigue condition. They are now suggesting that it is a disturbance of the nervous and immune system to a significant extent that it also spills over into the blood vessel system, causing some clots-like phenomena. We are trying to understand that. There are other findings that are happening that there's some low-grade inflammation happening in the brain that's responsible for the brain fog and the fatigue. So these are lots of new discoveries and scientific understandings, and the research is still new. There are new drugs that are going to come on the horizon, new ways of rehabilitating patients and supporting them. And the main challenge, which I have realized, is this condition affects predominantly women, it affects predominantly women and generally people between the ages of 30 to 70. And if you think about it, these are the most productive members of any economy. In any society, in any part of the world, we are saying that if, it, if you have a long-term condition with so many symptoms affecting the 30 to 60-year-olds, imagine how much productivity loss is there at risk to any economy, to any organization, to any job, employer, that is there and that's a very potential problem because they've estimated that up to 10% of people who got COVID can be left with long COVID. And given that the data now, think of it as an underestimate that we have 600 million people in the world who have potentially caught COVID, 
10% bole to 60 million people in the in and around the world are struggling with this new long-term condition that most healthcare professionals haven't heard about, read about, studied about in their textbooks or in their curriculum. And the world and the healthcare society now has to deal and support people with this condition. So there is a huge need for education, for upskilling, for understanding and dynamically changing your practice with the research that is coming out doing it. So it's it's a exciting field, but it is also a daunting field because you have as many positive and negative stories, as many treatments for which people will say this is awesome. And there will be people who are saying this treatment is bad practice. So trying to balance all this and to come up with a practice that gives sensible uh, precautions and sensible advice about rehabilitating people. I think that's what in the UK we are heading towards. And in my practice, which I helped set up in 2020, that's what we've tried to bring in. We've tried to bring that same elements that are used in pain management, the trauma-informed approach. You know, after all, COVID is a very traumatic event. We are not just talking about the viral infection on the nervous and immune system. Everybody, all of us who experienced in society what we went through during COVID, the lockdowns, the fear, the various dramas around the vaccine mandates and not the various challenges that the infection uh, caused to various bodies and how each member of the society reacted. I remember my cousins were living in Bangalore at that time and they were living in apartment complexes and they were telling me how difficult it was because if one person caught COVID, their room was banned. Everybody in the complex would say, what did they do? There was so much stigma itself in the initial phases of how people reacted to this condition and how we talked about uh, you know, keeping them apart and not talking to them. And, and you know, this is all things we have read about in the news. So from there to now, where we are now left with a bunch of people who are still struggling with those same symptoms, we as a society need to do more for them. We need to be telling them that this is a long-term condition. This is how we rehabilitate. This is how we support them. We have to use the best possible drugs with the best value that it can give. And at the same time, there is also a need for upskilling employers and society and education because even kids are getting it. I've got teenagers 16, 17 whose schooling has got stopped for one or two years because they are struggling with symptoms of extreme fatigue and pain and we can't get them back to school. So the school teachers and the head teachers and public health have all got to be educated about this new condition, about what it means, about what we should do. So I think it's it's a lot of work that needs to be done. So I'm very grateful to actually uh, Dr. Sharon and the team to invite us to really talk about what we think is a, a major problem. And in a way, I was surprised and not so surprised to hear that India and other Asian countries are having the same challenges of how to support these COVID struck employees and long COVID employees back into the workforce because it's a two-pronged thing. We need to support the people, but we also need to support the employers and HR and everybody there to understand what we are dealing with. And we need to find a way to adapt and support these employees to return to the workplace so that they can contribute. You know, this is a major age group, as I said. So I think there is that opportunity is what we are hoping to explore some of the findings. I think we've got Dr. Gross, ben, uh, Douglas Gross from Canada, yes. who's joining us in the workshop as well. So it'll be fantastic to hear of his research because he's done some really good quality of life work in the US, in the in Canada. And I think that workshop is going to be of real value, hopefully, because my colleagues, Sophie and Hannah, are going to be talk about the bread and butter. What is it that we do? Because right now we don't have a magic drug. Yes, we have some medication, but nothing that works for all the 200 symptoms. So we've got to provide some drugs for some of the symptoms rehabilitation for most of the symptoms but the most important thing is that team support to say we believe you you're struck with something that the virus has left you and we can do these things to support you and your employer and your family i think that is something my patients here have found invaluable you know we haven't cured anyone we don't have the silver bullet but what they found really helpful is someone who believed them 
someone who's laid out a plan for them that they can follow, a multimodal team that supported them with digital technology and ways to support them through flare-ups. That is what they have really valued. Hmm. You're also giving a keynote at the conference, right? Yeah. And that's going to be about your work primarily. Yeah, that's going to be around the research into pain, into trauma-informed pain care, the work that we do, because I passionately believe that if we have that trauma-informed lens, you know, the way we see the world through that lens of what it means when the nervous and immune system gets overprotective, means that it opens up a tremendous set of opportunities of doing the right thing for the right patient at the right time. And my keynote is going to hopefully explore those elements of what it is to do integrated pain care in the 21st and 22nd century in the era of chat GPT and AI and ML and why good quality care done by humans is still invaluable and cannot be replaced for the near future. That's a very exciting topic and I'm excited to um, hear it. But speaking about AI, um, there are digital advancements that are happening in the field. And I know that we talk, we briefly talked about them in our last conversation as well. But are there any developments that you find particularly promising or exciting? So I think there has been a massive surge in the use of technology itself and remote uh, telehealth, as it were, once COVID came along. Because the whole world moved and the whole world and its uncle moved on to that. We now have got really fantastic tools of working with people. Uh, the penetration of mobile phones is so much in every developed and developing nation that you do have the capacity for remote telehealth even for countries or towns or cities where you don't have the traditional healthcare facilities still in place. So I think, and then language and conversion, uh, language conversion is so easy to do these days at such low cost because of technology that I think what we need to do is to be able to bring it all together on a good platform and use sensible uh, algorithms to make sense and to actually provide the right information to the clinician and the right information to the patient seeking that support. So that is kind of the big picture view. What is happening, for example, both in pain and long COVID, in which I am more intimately involved in the UK, I'm the chief medical officer for a digital uh, platform called Butros there. And we are looking at employers in terms of return to work with chronic pain or with menopausal symptoms or with cancer care. So I know that that kind of technology platforms are being built wherein you can provide patients with that support with the platform, but you can also bring hybrid elements. So you can have the technology giving you some information that is already available in the public domain, but it is curated in the right way for the right patient. But then you can have the physical element of having a health coach or some other professionals working with you in addition to the technology platform. So you get the best of both worlds, but you're not limited by geography itself. I think that is an exciting place to be in. Uh, similarly, I know that for long COVID, we are using a digital platform called Living With in our country in the UK here, and they are doing the same thing. They provide the same technology platform for all symptom management of long COVID, but then it is supported by a physiotherapist who you have access to via the dashboard so that it doesn't feel like you're just using an app and you're left with it. You actually have the potential for engaging with another human if you need that extra bit of help to understand some parts of your condition or you have a flare up and you need someone. I think that is a very essential element for any technology platform is it should not be left for itself. And I think that's where I think we need to be sensible in terms of how we bring in AI because there are challenges. I think everybody uh, is aware that the kind of information that goes into creating that AI and the language learning model what goes in is important because if you feed it the wrong information, then it is going to make the wrong decision or it will come out of the wrong output. And in a way, that's where I kind of think the same trauma-informed approach, we should take that to AI as well. Imagine that AI is a small child 
that you are trying to teach how to behave, how humans behave, how you must respect elders, how you must treat people, how you must not discriminate. What the child learns in the first three to five years from its parents, what it learns in the first few years of school will give it the beliefs and will give it the way to think about the world and make decisions. So that change in the nervous and immune system can start from as young as when you're in the fetus to when you're the first three years. So when we know that children must be looked after and parented differently, the trauma-informed approach goes all the way back to childhood to prevent adversity from happening to the child or how to respond to it. We probably need to expand that to the AI models that we are teaching now that we need to also give it the right kind of information to give it a wide variety of information to teach it the right way so that it can make the right decisions. That means there needs to be some kind of a physician or a expert support of an AI model. And that I think is going to be the nirvana we look for. Some kind of a specialist who's got oversight of that and then an AI to do the work but then to actually then to wrap around and provide the care to the patient to have technology platforms that are capable of both the digital element, but also have the hybrid option of a physical add-on remotely or face-to-face -face if possible, but that will depend on the city that there are. I think that is very necessary for pain and rehabilitation of any kind, for that matter, any long-term condition, but I think specifically for pain, for long COVID, for other rehab, I think that is going to be a necessary way forward. That's how we need to look at it. And in my view, I think that could potentially be more sustainable is my feeling, but I don't have the research right now to back that up to say that kind of a model is going to be more sustainable than how we do things right now. But it's a lovely nugget of wisdom that you've just dropped for startup founders, for people who are still building apps in the healthcare space. So we've catered to all audiences. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm involved in the same kind of advice to some startups in there. So I think it, it, it will take some entrepreneur and their vision to actually take it to the next step, because I think that is something uh, that will really make a difference for a lot of countries, especially around the developing countries and so much of Asia and Africa, where healthcare expertise is thin on the ground especially as you go more interior or more rural this is a really good opportunity to use the existing technology we have and places like india you know where you've got so much data penetration infrastructure that is getting better i'm much more optimistic that that kind of uh, you know layer can be placed properly and utilized properly the most important thing is to get the initial source of information and teach the right kind of information to technology bots as it were in the process of creating that platform but that makes me really excited for the future and hopefully we can build something that lasts and that makes sense <laughs> indeed makes sense that is true makes sense <laughs> that's common sense is sometimes so rare isn't it <laughs> But I'm going to, um, we're coming to an end of our episode and I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every expert that comes in. Is this, is that what advice do you have for students who are either just graduating or who've entered the field of pain management or who are entering the research field of pain management? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a great question there. It's something... I would say that it is not just applicable to pain management, but for any long-term condition, I would first of all advise any student to stay curious, to absolutely stay curious and not to be bound down by the knowledge you've learned, to understand that 50% of what you learned in your healthcare school is going to be wrong and outdated within five years of you qualifying which means that if you don't stay curious and keep reading, you are going to be left behind. So uh, my first suggestion would be to stay curious and keep reading. The second thing with regards to pain management, as we understand the brain and the neuroscience, this is the field where there is going to be the most uh, sort of massive explosion in terms of research findings but how to apply it to the patient and how to get behavior change from the patient to get them to adhere and comply to you 
that is going to be the challenge, which means the second thing that I would want students listening who are going to potentially look at pain management maybe or any long-term condition is to equip and enable yourself with communication skills that can help you to enable behavior change in your patient that you're looking after. How do you communicate to them? How do you establish rapport with them? How do you establish trust with them? Those are very different skills that do not get taught in healthcare schools anywhere. They just talk about communication and shared decision making, but to be able to talk to patients without talking at them, that is a separate skill set in itself. So in fact, there is a lot to be said in looking at how digital marketers and influencers talk about their message. And I think that is something any healthcare professional or any young student looking at pain needs to take a leaf out of such books to improve their knowledge. Those are probably my two biggest points there. The third point, I think of all the ones that I'd say, you know, apart from reading my book, which is a plug-in again, naturally at this point, is to actually find a way to accept that in pain management, where things are so complex, it's about establishing that rapport with the patient and working with the patient as if they were a team member, not someone who needs to be treated and, and then move on to the next one. But it is to about building a relationship so that when they do have a flare up, when they do have something that doesn't go right for them, they can trust you enough to then take your advice and do the next thing that might work. And that I think will be great because if you then stay curious and you are also able to communicate that means the patient you have in front of you is someone who is going to be depending on you for a long time to come and that is going to be always a way to sustainably look after somebody and that you can build your team you know as a healthcare professional who is young and who wants to get into this field it's about building a team so that you can provide long-term care to your patients and that they value. And this is something that will never go out of value if you're going to be there to first establish rapport and trust with them. Those are really powerful messages to be telling students. Uh, I know that when I go to a doctor, it makes a hell of a difference if I'm being heard or if I'm not being heard. I know who Absolutely. I want to follow up with. Absolutely. 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 So thank you for that. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in Bangalore. Exactly. Looking forward to it as well. Meeting in person, Aditi. Thank you so much for having me today on the Expert Series. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation. <laughs>